podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Oh, the shark bait has such teeth there, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Bay, and it keeps it out of sight. You know when that shark bites. Well, so welcome everybody to another episode of Macklin's Take. This is episode number ninety-five. If you can believe that, we're closing in on our century, just five away, and we'll get there before Christmas. Before we put up the shutters for the end of the year, uh, we should get there quite comfortably, actually, I think, with big fights coming up towards the end of November and start of December. And it's just a bit mad that the end of the year's come around at all, almost. There were, there were times when I began to wonder if it was ever going to happen. It's, it's the longest year in living history, I think, for, for most people. It seems to have gone on forever, even though very, very little has, has happened. But... Um, from a purely selfish point of view, we've really enjoyed doing the podcast during uh, the COVID crisis because we've had to get a bit more creative with it. We've had to do it differently. Um, switching to Zoom, that's been interesting. It's, it's cast the net a little bit wider. It's meant that we've been able to get people on who we wouldn't be able to get normally, like Tim May last week. Um, we're never going to bump into Tim otherwise, and that was great fun talking to him about Tyson against, against Douglas. It's forced us to have a bit of a think about things we could talk about, themes we could hit on. Uh, really enjoy the Make or Break series over the summer. We can definitely revisit that. I'm very much enjoying the big fight deep dives that we're, that we're doing at the moment off the back of the, the chat we had with, with Brian Dugan uh, a few weeks ago. We've done some interesting ones so far. And today we've got a really interesting one again. It's a really good choice of, of fight and... I'm not being self-congratulatory when I say that because the the credit here is is due to our due to our guest. Um, he's a good pal of ours who was always earmarked for this. Um, this is this is a bit of him all day long. He's been covering the, the sport of boxing, amateur and pro, for a long time. He knows it inside out. So we asked him, "What fight would you fancy doing?" Uh, and he came back with a couple, both Kawasaki fights, Kawasaki Hopkins and Kawasaki Lacey. Both good ones to do. But me and Matt. Had a chat and just thought Kalzagi Lacey is a really, really good fight to do. It wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have jumped to the front of my mind, to be honest. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, yeah, let's do that. Because it was an absolutely pivotal fight in the career of somebody who subsequently, given the fact that he won that fight, it's a bit of a make or break this as well, has gone down as possibly one of the, well, possibly the best British boxer uh, of all time. And there was a hell of a lot on that fight um, when it took place in, in early March 2006. And the man who recommended it, the man who joins us, is uh, is Ron Lewis. And he's coming to us from the from the matchroom bubble at the uh, at the Wembley Hilton, I I do believe. How's uh, how's that treating you? Uh, it's going okay. Uh, let's hope the Wi-Fi holds out for the next um, 30 minutes or, um, or I might be going robotic again on you. But that's no, good. It's really nice to, be, you know, it's it's been such an odd year. It's just so great to be seeing fights. Uh, that's that's the big thing. You know, it's, it's great to be among boxing people. You know, Zoom has become this sort of thing where it's replaced, you know, meeting people, and that's that's tough to you know when when you know your livelihood and that is is getting to know people and getting stories and getting people to talk to you that you're suddenly you know 
your access to people is often restricted to one of six faces with two questions before someone else presses the mute button on you. And uh, so, yes, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing the fights and, um, you know, anything I'm getting to, I'm just happy for. Yeah, absolutely. We'd, we'd, we'd both echo that. Um, so let's get into it. Let's get into it, chaps. So let's just go round. We did this the other day before the Ben Eubank fight. Let's just go round and, and, and give people an idea of, of what was going on with, with us when this, when this fight was, was, was taking place. So I was... I was working at Talk Sport. I was covering some boxing, but not much. They weren't really into boxing at that stage. It was mainly football for me. And I remember sacking off a mate's birthday to go home and watch this fight because I think it started at two o'clock in the morning, if I remember rightly. I was out in Covent Garden. I made it very clear that if by quarter past one, we weren't somewhere where I could watch it, then I was off because I knew that I could get home and get back in front of the TV in 45 minutes. So that's what I did. Sat up and watched it by myself. And as the round slipped by, just was mesmerised by by how good Calzaghi was that night. So, Macklin, what was what was going on with you in in early two thousand and six? Well, I was mandatory challenger to fight Jamie Moore for the uh, British title mentor bucks. I think in May. And um, yeah, sorry, yeah, I just come back from America, or I was about to go to America. I was meant to box on a John. I was co-feature to a John Duddy fight, first time he boxed at the theatre. Madison Square Garden, and I remember watching the Calzaghi fight because it was what had happened at that time. You know, Ricky Hatton had left Frank Warren after the Costa Sioux fight, and Frank Warren block booked the MEN, you know, for a year. So he was the only boxing promoter that could put a show on there. Because really, Joe Calzaghi fighting Jeff Lacey, you'd think he'd have put it on in Cardiff at the Millennium Stadium, but obviously he's booked the the MEN for a year to put the block on Ricky. And, you know, so he has to use it and he stacked the card with a lot of Manchester fighters and whatever. So I was well, I was training in Manchester at the time. And, um, you know, obviously there was a lot of talk. Lacey was, you know, it, it's easy to sort of dismiss it now in hindsight. But at the time, people thought Lacey was the the real deal. You know, he was American. He was that, that over there in America. They they thought he was going to smash Calzaghi to pieces. And a lot of people he did too. No one thought he was going to go in and, absolutely dismantle him the way he did. I mean, I've seen closer, I've seen closer fights on the bag. <laughs> you know, I've seen people have, have closer rounds on the bag than what Jeff, than what Joe Calzaghi and Jeff Lacey. If you're going to talk about a punch perfect display, I mean, that was it, wasn't it? It was just unbelievable. But yeah, I, I, you know, that, we'll, we'll obviously get into that, but I was, I was, um, I think I was just training. I either just was about to go to New York to fight on that card or I'd just come back from it, having that thought on it. That's another story. Um, and like I say, I was mandatory to fight Jamie Moore. So that's where my career was at that time. So, Rob, we know where you were because you were you, you were ringside. But I, I'll I was, just put up ringside. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just um, I'll just put a little bit of of kind of flesh on on the bones as to how this fight ended up happening, um, and then you can you can elaborate. So Kazaki won the won the WBO title against. Chris Eubank in 1997. He was supposed to box Steve Collins to challenge Steve Collins, but Collins pulled out with an injury, subsequently retired. Eubank came in quite late notice. Uh, Calzaghi knocked him down in the first round, but Eubank Bank took him a distance, took him into the trenches, which is what he said he would do. And Calzaghi always talks about it still now and says that that was one of his hardest fights because that's exactly what Eubank did do. He took him 
He took him into those trenches and, and showed him a few things that he'd never seen before. Off the back of that, by the time he got to the Lacey fight, he made 17 defences, which was the longest in, in, in any division in, in boxing. But he hadn't really got the recognition that he would have wanted off the back of that. He hadn't been able to get unifications with the WBC, IBF uh, and WBA. Uh, there were reasons for that, which we'll, we'll get into uh, in a bit, I'm sure. Um, one of the main reasons is that for a big proportion of that period, all three of those titles were in the possession of either Marcus Bayer, the WBC, or Sven Ocker, the WBA and the IBF. German fighters who, who didn't really want to leave Germany in box, which was absolutely their right. And that's, that, that's the way they decided to go. And he just didn't manage to get any of those big fights. And, and as a result, he wasn't talked about as being a really, really top fighter. He had hand problems too, which didn't really help. He went through a messy divorce. And, and Lacey, on the other hand, came over as this very, very hyped up American. 21-0, 17 knockouts. When Otka finally retired, uh, undefeated, and vacated his belt, Lacey then won it against a fighter called Sid Vanderpool um, in October 2004 to become the IBF champion, and then this, this fight was made. And the chat around him was massive. It was a bit like when McClellan came over to fight Nigel Benn, or if you want to go further back, when Howard Davis came over to fight Jim Watt. Um, similar story with Terence Crawford and, and Errol Spence, who obviously both did then deliver, but it's not... It's not always been the case. I mean, some of the ways that he was described, he was described by uh, by Gary Shaw, his, his guy, his manager, his promoter, as a cross between Tyson and Holyfield and the most exciting boxer in the world. And he was installed as the favourite, slight favourite, but nevertheless the favourite. So, Ron, it was, I mean, this was massive for Kawasaki. If he hadn't won this fight, and I know he won it by street in the end, but there were plenty of people who thought that he wasn't going to win this fight. If he hadn't won this fight, then obviously he would not have gone on to achieve the unbeaten record. That's one thing. But he probably wouldn't have gone on to achieve all of the other things that he achieved. And just the way that he was kind of disparaged by the by the American press in particular, um, just generally, but in the build-up to this fight, was when you look back on it now, it's even by their standards, it was it was pretty brutal stuff. Yeah, I mean, what you got to remember with Joe at this time, Joe's career is kind of ground to a standstill at this point. You know, there'd been talk um, of him fighting uh, Hopkins and Hopkins, the, you know, the story goes, agreed to it and doubled his money. That was a, that was a few years before. And, um, you know, there was a time, I think, was it the year before this or 18 months before this, that he ended up going to Germany to fight, to have a rematch with Mario Veit and, uh, in Braunschweig. And um, I remember, I don't believe it turned up, ended up on British TV because um, that, that's the sort of strange lack of interest there was in him. The fight was meant to happen a bit earlier the, the year before, but he, he had a warm-up fight against a guy called Evans Ashira. These are the sort of names coming out of the depths of your mind now. And um, he damaged his hand again. And, and there was a general feeling that, you know, he was going nowhere. He was being taken a distance by the, these guys. During his divorce, he, he boxed a guy in um, Edinburgh called Kabari Salem, and he was dropped by him, and his mind wasn't on the job. He was struggling at the weight. You know, he, he kind of gave the impression of a guy didn't want to be boxing much anymore. And, you know, I, th- I think that was largely the reason that Lacey, and more importantly, people like Gary Shaw and that people behind him, saw this as the moment that Kawasaki was kind of a finished, finished item 
and they were going to come and it was going to be sort of easy money and they were going to, you know, sling, sling off the back of that and, and get into, you know, become a superstar in the USA. Obviously, um, it didn't work out like that. Um, I, remember, I remember Lacey, the first time I ever saw Lacey, he was on the undercard of a Joe Boxster fight. Again, it was a bit of a plodder fight, but it was at, at Cardiff Castle and uh, bought a guy called Juanez. And it was a Showtime fight. So I remember they brought two Americans over, one American, one Puerto Rican. One was Juan Guzman, who looked very good. And the other one was um, was Lacey, who fought Jason Collins, who was a, an Ingle fighter. And he knocked him down in the first round. And Collins uh, did that thing of getting up at 10 and a half and then arguing with the, um, arguing with the referee that should be allowed to continue. And... Um, you know, so there was a lot. There was a lot of hype around him, and just before this, he'd boxed Robin Reed, and Robin Reed, of course, for years he was the one guy that people claimed, oh, he should have got the decision against Joe, and um, and he absolutely annihilated Robin. I think uh, uh, Robin got points. He got knocked down about four times, and he had about three points deducted as well. I think after about seven rounds, he was about twelve rounds behind, and um, so. You know, Lacey did did look the part, and, and there was a lot thought of him. And you know, it wasn't just empty bluster. He, he was a dangerous looking fighter. And um, Joe, as I say, he'd been knocked down by Kabari Salem. If Kabari Salem can knock you down, what's Jeff Lacey going to do to you? That, that was the thing. I think he was about two to one actually. So I think I think um, Joe was. So I think it was a it was a pretty strong favourite. I remember having an argument with um, the Times tipster at the time that he'd actually tipped Lacey as a good good. And I, I kind of told him, I don't think you're right there, but there we are. One, so one Matt, bet, what was years on. <laughs> Matt? What was the um, what was the kind of theory regarding Kalzagi around the around the pro gyms at that point? Did people think that he he missed his window? Did they think that his hands maybe just wouldn't do it for him? Did they think that he? He should have got out of South Wales and got a new trainer. What were what were people what were people thinking? Because those were all things that that people were saying. Yeah, I think very much a mixed bag, really. Um, all of those things that you said, it, you know, he was 34 years old. I think when he boxed Jeff Lacey, he'd been, you know, like you say, he'd been, he'd been 17 defence of the world title. He was, he was, I think, seen on the world scene as solid, you know, a solid fighter, a, you know, good, solid world champion, difficult to be, but certainly wasn't going to be in anyone's top 10 pound for pound list. No one was thinking of him, in that sort of conversation at all, you know. But, again, it's, it's something where it's one of those examples. I mean, every, every week we, we, we're, talk, we're commentating on fights and we get different opponents and we, we read a bit, we look at their records and we, or we, or we might be familiar with them or we've seen the box such and such a one and we'll look at it. But we're looking at the surface. We don't know what's gone on in that person's life, his career behind the scenes. Was he struggling with the weight when he fought such and such a one? Was he going through a divorce? Was his head that he just split with the track? You know, there's a million things that can affect you outside of the ring that affects how you perform. Where you, you know, and, and I think Joe probably, you know, had had many different not excuses, but the, many different reasons for why he didn't really perform to his ability. Uh, he got wins. I mean, there was, I think I don't know how true this is, but I think there was there was meant to have been a period in his career where he didn't even spar because he didn't want to hurt his hands. I mean, how can you possibly perform to the best of your ability if you don't even spar? That said, and I remember speaking to Joe when I was training for the uh, 
Sergio Martinez fight because I busted my knuckles three weeks out. I, I bruised my ribs a few days before that. So I hadn't sparred for three weeks out and I hadn't punched anything for two weeks out. And I heard that Joe hadn't punched for two weeks out from the Jeff Lacey fight. And of course, it was an unbelievable performance. So I remember texting him saying, this, hi, mate, how's things? This, yeah, blah, blah. I said, look, listen, I've done my rib. I've hurt my hands. I haven't sparred in three weeks. And I had punched in two weeks. It was a couple of days before the fight. I was trying to source a bit of confidence. But, and he, he told me, yeah, he hadn't punched in that. So, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't sparred and he hasn't performed well. But then he has to punch for two weeks. And he puts on the best performance of his career. But maybe he was just so up for it. There's, like I say, there's, it, there's so many different variables that can affect why you perform really well or why you don't perform so well. I just think it was, I think it was at the point, and, and Ron will tell you the background about how the fight ne- nearly never happened, frankly. I mean, he's one of Frank Warren's favourite stories, how he had to basically talk Joe, convince Joe not to pull out of the fight. You know what I mean? Because he, he had hurt his hands. But, listen, it was the fight that absolutely catapulted him to a completely different level in terms of how everyone's seen him. I, I think he always had that in him, Joe. I think he was always that good of a fighter. But I think he coasted in a lot of fights, had a lot of injuries. There were a lot of fights maybe he just couldn't, was overly motivated for. He had a bit of a, he had one of those styles, Joe, where he could get dragged into a bit of a scrappy fight. But on this particular night, he was up for it, obviously. He had enough fear in him because he knew Lacey, was, you know, Lacey had this massive hype around him, as, as Ron just said. So I think Joe had that fear in his belly where, like we say, and then I always say it to you, fear is a good thing. Fear is your friend because it makes you sharp. And I never see Joe Calzaghe look anywhere near as sharp as he did that night. It, it was a punch-perfect performance. So, Ron, in terms of the, in terms of the promotional team, what sense did you get from them, did you get the feeling that they thought he would win? Because when you're on the inside of something, you can't. You get the vibe, don't you? Obviously, they're going to say that they think he's going to win, and they want him to win. Of course, they want him to win, but you, you can get a feel, can't you, sometimes as to whether they really believe it or not. Do you think that the people around him, um, obviously Enzo and the really tight inner circle, believed he would win? What, what kind of feeling did you get generally during the week about what they thought was going to happen? It wasn't so much from the uh, promotional team I got the idea. Uh, Frank was, I, I remember once sat around a table with Frank and, and he was asked who he thought Britain's greatest ever fighter was. And this was long before this. And he put Joe's name up, which, you know, was scoffed at widely. So I think he always believed in him. And he always, you know, felt that Joe was a guy who needed pushing. He needed pushing in all sorts of things. I remember he was, he was often a tough interview because, um, and, and I also often adopted the idea when interviewing Joe of just winding him up because if he got annoyed, he'd start saying things interesting. And so sometimes I'd, I'd just deliberately try and sort of just wind him up when I was talking to him because otherwise, you know, he'd be very straight and, and, and you know, not that interesting. But uh, what, what absolutely convinced me that Joe was going to win was I remember I think it was the Wednesday was – you know, what is sort of like the, the media workouts, as it were. And they were being held at um, Bob Shannon's gym in Manchester, which was a sort of um, downstairs from a youth club. And, and it was an old squash court. It was converted in, into a boxing gym. And I was just chatting to Joe, on, on um, me, me and him. And he just said, he's not that good. Kessler's a better fighter than him. I think it's going to be easy. And he said it was such confidence that... 
you know, the guy who actually knew what he was going into. And I tried young Joan for years by that time. So it was a kind of view I, I totally trusted. There was no, there wasn't the slightest fear in his mind that actually Lacey was going to really worry him. I mean, I think he thought it was competitive and he thought it was a good opportunity, but certainly by fight week, he was he was absolutely in the zone. And, um, you know, well, he, he followed that that sort of confidence on straight into the fight with the way he took the fight to um, to Lacey as well. I mean, if you look back at the fight, he hurt Lacey in the first round and he just kept hurting him. And people have this view of Joe looking back that he was, you know, Joe was a slapper, Joe had no power, Etc. 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 This wasn't like that at all. He was hurting him time and time and time again, and um, you know he showed plenty of power in this fight, and, and um, that, that's what really threw Lacey off. It wasn't just the sort of dazzling hand speed; it was the fact that he was hurting him as well. Matt, what did what did fellow professionals make of that that kind of label of of Calzaghi being a slapper? Because for me. Eubank talks about Calzaghi in glowing terms, and we all know how how tough Eubank was, still is. You know, he was he was hard as nails as a fighter, and he said that every single punch that Calzaghi hit him with hurt, and that kind of testimony, I think you have to take seriously. But it's something that people just said all the way through his career that that you know that he was a that he was a a slapper. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? No, I, I mean he. I mean, his hand speed was phenomenal. That that was that was the thing that just jumped out at you. And and his his uh, his volume, how many punches he threw. He didn't load up. He just let his hands go. He threw punches in bunches. He threw a lot of combinations fast. But he finished the he finished. So they, he, you know, he used to do that thing, and he oh, he slaps, he slaps. And he was like, no, he just finds a rhythm. You know, he does that to get a rhythm and and, and bedazzle his opponents a little bit with the with combinations and speed. Well, you watch his combinations. Every now and then, he turned one over. You could, you know, he finished the combination with a hard shot. It's like he'd throw all these fast combos to open you up, but he finished the combination with a hard shot. And you only had to see the way he used to rock his opponents to his boots, that their boots that he could bang. He had lots of knockouts. So, no, I think certain. Well, I can only speak for myself, but I, I, I'm guessing for most fighters in and around the scene, they all knew Joe Calzaghe could punch. Uh, one, one thing I remember, um, I remember going out to Berlin once to interview um, Arthur Abraham, sort of early, early in his career. It was, it was just after he had that fight with um, um, Miranda when he had his jaw badly broken. And um, I went out to chat to him and he was talking about Joe Calzaghe and he said he loved Joe Calzaghe. And again, the thing he brought up was this idea that people think he punches soft and he does land, and he said he does land some soft punches, but in the between he'll mix up a hard punch. And so the guy getting hit can't risk walking through the punches thinking they're going to be all soft punches because at some point a hard one's coming with it. And, you know, they soon learn that. And, and it, it gets, you know, I assume it just gets sort of dispiriting and, and, and difficult to cope with because you honestly don't know what's coming at you. Yeah, and I also think that's why he probably hurt so many people because, you know, you you leave people ringside when you're a you know, very, very the speed, very the power, you know, because if your box is someone that can bang hard, eventually you get used to it, you brace up and you acclimatise to it, you're, you're expecting the shots to hurt. When you kind of, someone's tippy-tapping you and hitting you with speed and you kind of relax a little bit and then one, they turn a hard one over, bang, that's, <laughs> that's the shot that hurts you, you know, because you're not ready for it, you're not braced for it, you, you, you've, uh, 
it almost it can almost lure you into a false sense of security a little bit, and you can relax. And then when they hit you, when they finish that combination with a hard shot, you weren't expecting it. That's the shot that does the damage. And so just just with regard to the story that Matt, Matt referred to was that he, he did injure his hand or, or wrist um, in the week of the fight or very close towards the start, you know, towards fight night. And and he was undecided. He was thinking that he would pull out. The way Enzo tells it is, is dad, it, it was him basically who, who said to him, you cannot pull out of this fight. This is a fight you've been waiting for. It's been delayed once already. You cannot do this. You can beat this guy with one hand, but whatever you do, you cannot pull out of this of this fight. And he was right, wasn't he? Because Ron, what what do you think would have happened if he if he had pulled the plug, Kawasaki, four or five days out? I mean, he'd have been he'd have been radioactive, wouldn't he? Yeah, he'd have never have been trusted with a big fight again. I mean, you know, we're talking about you know you know when American TV companies come over and the amount they've invested in it. You know, we're talking about a show in the middle of the night and. To pull the plug on that is so much money down the drain. And the Americans wouldn't trust them again. That's the thing. You know, there was, I remember it was, it was one of the first fights on ITV after ITV got back involved in, um, in, in boxing. I remember chatting to the head of sport at ITV when, when they, they agreed the deal. And he was sort of like speaking slightly uh, off the record to me. And, and he said, because it was basically off the back of Amir Khan, off the back of, of signing Amir Khan, that's, that's what got ITV in. And um, he just says to me, I'm not sure about this Joe Kawasaki. And I said to him, oh, no, you know, my, my view was obviously Kawasaki was a, a brilliant fighter. But, it, you know, there is a guy who's involved in TV sport who just wasn't convinced that Joe Kawasaki was any good, and that's in Britain. And, um, you know, there are a lot of things that go back, as I say. You know, we, he obviously had that huge spell of, you know, he doesn't want to come out of Wales in his career. And, you know... The fact that his his career for so long was mirrored by Sven Ocker, who had two of the titles in Germany, and Ocker just wouldn't fight him. I mean, not only would he not come out of Germany, there was no interest in fighting him because to them it was seen as he had a good TV deal in Germany. Why fight Kalzaghi? You add the WBO title, it doesn't honestly affect the TV deal because Kalzaghi isn't known to a German TV audience. And, you know, they, they were quite happy with that and they kind of probably knew Ocker's limitations, but... Ocker got through his career unbeaten and, um, you know, no one's really talking about him now. Though. That could have been the career of Joe Calzaghi if he'd have pulled out of that. It could have been what happened to Sven Ocker. A few more yeah, defences, mandatory challenges. I think he would have been. I think that's how he probably would have been remembered as well. I mean, he, he, he had a lot of, like I say, you know, good, solid wins, defences, world title defences, but not massively uh, inspiring or not big names or not big names in the prom. I mean, I fought on one of his undercards at the CIA when he fought uh, Charles Brewer. It was my fifth pro fight. And that was a great fight. Now, Charles mm-hmm. Brewer was a former world champion, but he was a former world champion. You know, it wasn't a guy who beat, let's say, who was in the form of his life. You're, you know, do you know what I mean? He, didn't, he hadn't had that marquee signature fight, really. Uh, Carl Zaggi suffered for years for not having Ben Collins, Eubank around. You know, they had each other which when they're in these big fights and it, it kind of cements them where Kazaki was beating a lot of guys that were good fighters, but no one had heard of, you know, now all of a sudden you got Lacey who'd been the U S Olympian had this massive hype because Gary Shaw thought he was the best thing since sliced bread. And, you know, he come over and a lot of people, but like I say, he, he was the favorite for the fight. And Joe, it was, I'm, I'm nearly sure Andy, it was two weeks out. Joe didn't punch. Cause I'm yeah. like I said, I spoke to him that time before I fought Martinez. 
and it was two weeks he hadn't punched before the fight. Hey, 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 kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! So, Ron, what was it like during fight week then with regard to the, the the US side of it? Because he would have arrived in good time, in good time, Lacey. I watched I watched the, the fight back, the broadcast, the ITV broadcast back yesterday, watched the Mr. Calzaghi documentary. It's it's great it's great for me this doing these look backs because it's a brilliant excuse to just rewatch a load of stuff and, and reread a load of stuff. What what vibe did you get from from him and also from the American press because I've been around them a fair bit now and some of them they're a, their company I very much enjoy others they can be shall we say gung-ho they can be very gung-ho American boxing uh, press not that we can't at times but they've got their own kind of special uh, special seal on that I would say so what, 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 what came over from the States is basically what I'm saying well, I don't seem to remember many, many U.S. press coming over. I mean, the first time I really remember U.S. press coming over for a Calzaghi fight was um, a Kessler fight at, um, at Millennium Stadium. You know, it was, we all know what an incident a place America could be. But, you know, Showtime came over and Showtime, I mean, I think Showtime were then, by then was slightly fed up with, um, you know, slightly fed up with what they'd got from, from Calzaghi, from, from the investment. And so from that, and, and obviously by then they'd lost um, they'd lost Ricky Hatton as well because he he parted ways and he was fighting on HBO. And so I think um, Lacey was the big thing. You know, there's always been the cry out for a big American, you know, actual American star, and there still is. There's still you know the, the way they could get behind someone like Wilder is a, is a classic example of that. And um, you know. You get all these great fighters like Canelo and that sort of thing, but they want an American. They want a big punching American, and, and hence you got all the the um, connections to you know the next coming of uh, Tyson. That's um, you know was was regularly said he was like Tyson. He fought like Tyson. He was as powerful as Tyson, and he was going to go knocking out. And they were already talking about. Him not only cleaning up at super middleweight but moving up to light heavyweight, they expected big, big things out of him. And this was the fight that was going to make him a star. This was a this was the next fight would have been, you know, take up the residency in Vegas. That that's how much they thought of Lacey. And you know, we look at him back as, as you know, not not that, and that was a, that's unfair because he took such a beating in this fight. And you really have to watch it to actually remember what a big... Because, again, the view is he was outclassed. You think of outclassed, you think, oh, you get outboxed. He was absolutely battered. There were in fight stats that he was hit by more than a 1,000 punches. Not more than a 1,000 punches were thrown. He was hit by more than a 1,000 punches. 
And, um, you know, it was almost criminal that Dan Birmingham, his corner man, never pulled him out. He kept sending him out. And he had no chance from, I'd say, the fifth or sixth round onwards because he was really hurt by then. And he was just walking into more and more shots. And Kawasaki was getting quicker and quicker and more and more dominant. And uh, perhaps not quicker, but he was getting more and more dominant. And he was, he was you know, there, there was just, there's a time, you know, people always say in boxing, you know, you've got to punch his chance. But you've only got to punch his chance if you can get in the position to throw the punch to land it. And if you can't move your feet into a position to, to land the punch, you know, that lucky punch is never going to come. And it was a fight where he was just getting hit all the time. And the lack of care for his well-being was was noted afterwards. I remember Jay Larkin, who was the head of Showtime, was was pretty damning of um, Shaw and um, Birmingham for actually putting him through that straight after the fight. You know, we don't know how he's going to be because that's how bad it was. I think you're spot on, Ron. I mean, it, was Lacey overhyped? Was he not as good as people thought? Yeah, I think that that is probably true. But I think he was better than what people think of him now because he never he never come back from that fight off Joe Kalzaki. He got absolutely smashed from pillar to post constantly for the whole 12 rounds. I mean, the fight could have been stopped. I suppose there wasn't... You know, he didn't get wobbled or dropped or nothing where it was so conclusive where the ref had to jump in and stop it or even probably could have. And it's a world title fight and he was a big puncher. So people give him that benefit of the doubt. But, you know, you got someone in Joe Calzaghe who's one of the fittest fighters ever. He, he was never going to tire, ever. Right. Mm. And he had a solid chin. You know what I mean? So, and and he's, you know, when you're, when you're teeing off on someone, let me tell you, it's a lot more tiring for them. It's tiring when you're throwing and you're missing. But when you're smashing someone, you know, they're getting... It's more draining to be getting the head punched off you than it is to be throwing the punches. You know, Joe Calzaghe could have done 15 rounds. Joe Calzaghe was super fit. He was... He, he must have... I, I doubt he's ever enjoyed being in there in, in more in a fight. He was, he's accurate. He didn't miss him. He didn't miss one punch. He literally threw it... As you said, Ronnie hurt him in the first round. And he hurt him every single round after that corner. How they let him go on after six or seven rounds, you know, never mind after that. He should have been pulled out. He never, Jeff Lacey never, ever recovered from that beating. You know, you talk about, we talk about fighters having miles on the clock. We talk about fighters, you know, it was a bad knockout, but it wasn't a bad beating. That was an horrendous beating. It'd have been, it'd have been so much better off if he got badly knocked out early on. Well, I watched it back yesterday, like I said, and, and I hadn't watched it for quite a while, actually. And I hadn't re-familiarised myself with the story and the backdrop and all of those things. And and it was it's a really interesting kind of exercise to do that, actually. If, if anybody listening to this hasn't watched it back for a while, then do watch it back. Because I remember when I watched it at the time... I never really had favourites particularly. It was always good if, if if UK fighters, UK athletes did well. But for me, it was more about the spectacle. I just wanted to see good sport, a good fight. But I remember really wanting Calzaghe to win that fight because I thought he'd been disrespected a bit in the build-up. Much like Froch against Lucien Butte a few years later, I really wanted Calzaghe to win the fight. And at the start, I was quite, I was quite nervous. I was quite nervous. And the nerves evaporated very, very quickly. And I just remember, and, and this, this, this really came back to me when I watched it yesterday. After three rounds in the corner, Dan Birmingham says to Lacey, he can't keep up this pace. They go back to the commentary team, John Rawling and Duke McKenzie, who I thought did a really top job 
John Rawling just asked Duke McKenzie, you know, well, they say he can't keep up this pace. And Duke McKenzie immediately just says, yes, he can. Yes, he can. They're wrong. He can do this all night long. He was so emphatic and he was so, so right. And when you watch Lacey in there, he comes in at two o'clock in the morning to this baying mob. There are no Jeff Lacey fans in the MEN. And right from second one, as you two have said, he is in a private hell of the, of the kind that myself and Ron can only imagine. And my God, what a lonely place that must have been. I mean, he showed unbelievable balls to get, to get through that fight. But just to go back to the beginning, one thing that's really noticeable when they come into the ring is that Lacey is this absolute unit. Um, a guy from the Manic Street Preachers on, on the Kawasaki documentary came up with a great line where he said he looked like he looked like a load of walnuts stuffed into a condom. You know, he's, he's that, he's that, it's good, isn't it? I can't claim that as my own, but he's that shredded and his back's massive. And then you look at Kawasaki and he's in very good shape, but the look, it looks like there's a couple of weight divisions between them. We had Enzo on the podcast recently, Enzo Mack, and he was telling us about the old school training down in, in Newbridge at the gym, Matt. But Kawasaki was just a great example of someone who, that was his weight. He would fight at that weight. He was strong at that weight, probably didn't rehydrate massively and go that far over that weight. He was always looked like the smaller guy pretty much, but yeah, he, it just didn't matter. You know, we talk about body, you know, he wasn't a muscular guy. He wasn't the most athletic of people, but when I say athletic, you know, looking and whatever, but in terms of engine, heart and lungs, he, Joe Calzaghe's stamina is up there with the best fighters you'll ever come across. He, he, he you know, he used to do 12 rounds, bell to bell, and not, not many people could stay with him at the pace Joe Calzaghe would go at and that hand speed he had and, and could do it consistently for 12 rounds up on his toes. You know, and, and, and even talking, you know, physical strength, Joe was strong and he hit hard. He might not have looked the part physically, but he was physically strong. Ask anyone that's boxed him, ask anyone who sparred him. He was very strong and he hit very hard. And in terms of stamina, there weren't many fighters. What now? However he got there, old school, new school, whatever way you look at it training-wise, whatever he did worked for him because there weren't many fighters that could do the 12 rounds better than Joe Calzaghe. Well, you look at a, a classic example of how good his stamina was, how good his fitness was, was um, when he fought Hopkins. And Hopkins, and, and that was probably Calzaghe a bit over the hill when he fought Hopkins. But essentially, by around 9 or 10, Hopkins, again, he was just, you know, while he was old, he was as fit as he come. He was throwing himself on the floor because he couldn't cope with the amount of punches that that Kawasaki was getting. He couldn't cope with the speed, and essentially he was he was diving on the floor, claiming you know low he blows that weren't low, low blows. blows to just get out of the way. Yeah, he blacked the low blow because he, he couldn't handle the pace. Couldn't I, I, handle I the pace. Think that's how crafty Hopkins was, though, because he did what he done what he had to do <laughs> to get that rest because Kawasaki was getting to him. You know, he fought a great fight. Calzaghe just kept touching him, kept touching him. And Hopkins couldn't draw him in. And he could see Calzaghe was draining Hopkins. He was, and, I, and I think if he hadn't have done what he'd done and took the five-minute rest, I think Calzaghe might have ended up getting to him and stopping him. Hey, everybody. This is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. Yeah. 
Yeah. So what, what was it like in the arena on the night, Dan? What, what was the kind of, what was fight day like for you? Because you like to watch the whole card. Um, you know, you're like us like that. So you'd always get there early. So how did it, how did it all kind of build? Because it's an unusual one, obviously, because of the really late start for, for American TV. I mean, the atmosphere by the time the ring walks came across. I mean, at the minute, watching anything with a full crowd looks unbelievable because of the circumstances we've got currently. But it looked, it looked immense. It looked like a, 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 a really top draw MEN night. Yeah, but those night, those but... nights are actually sort of very strange because um, I remember it was described to me that because the undercard always goes short with those late starts. You know, the, the main start is at two o'clock. We can almost guarantee there'll be no fight after two. 1230 you can almost guarantee there's a and I remember someone describing it as the atmosphere in the arena at um, half past one half an hour to the main event was much like an airport terminal in the middle of the night when there were people sort of like you know actually lying around there was a real feeling of lethargy and that sort of thing but when the sort of 15 minutes started building to the fight everyone sprung back to life everyone sprung back to life and Obviously, by the you know, because that's what everyone had been waiting for. You know, there were no bars open at that time anymore. Everyone was in the arena, everything was building, and and you know, there was it wasn't packed that night, but it was um it was a pretty healthy crowd. I was just gonna say, Ron, I mean Gandhi was saying, you know, the electric crowd in in Manchester, I mean it, it wasn't you gotta remember, this wasn't Hatton Costa Sue. This this wasn't even sold out. It was far from sold out. You know, this it was after this fight that Joe Calzaghi's profile went just to a different level altogether. It really it did. And then the Hopkins and, you know, then he obviously... Was the Kessler one before this? No, no. Kessler was that, unified Kessler, all the titles, yeah. That was 50,000 at Millennium Stadium, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Coming into the Lacey fight, Calzaghi's outside of the hardcore boxing. Joe Calzaghi wasn't that crossover star that he should have been. It was the win against Lacey, where he was an underdog on terrestrial television, ITV, and the performance. It was, it was, it was this performance that transcended Calzaghi's career to another level. But that, that's exactly why this was, this was a make or break for him. We should try and get him on, actually, at some point and see if we can do this fight with him for that, for that, that make or break series. He, he's definitely somebody I think it would be better to try and, try and sit down with. Um, get a fight night in Cardiff, maybe we can, we can give that a try at, at some point. But the, the performance though, as you say, it was in the fights that came after this where his legacy, if you like, was really created and then rubber stamped. But this performance after this, I don't think anybody could have been in too much doubt as to who the number one super middleweight in the world was. I mean, it was an interesting time because Otka had, had vacated and that's why Lacey had the IBF and, and Kessler picked up the um, the WBA and then unified against Marcus Bayer. So he then had the two belts. Uh, but I mean, I just can't remember having watched it back yesterday. I cannot remember before or since watching, certainly not live, a better performance than this. I, I, I tweeted yesterday, I don't think it's possible to box better than that. Um, and most people seem to seem to agree with me. And watching it back, it's it is just kind of mesmerising. It reminded me a bit of watching of watching Fury against Wilder, their second fight. And and I come back to that fight quite a lot. But but I was nervous, like I said before that fight for 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 Calzaghi. I wanted him to win, and 
those nerves evaporated really quickly. After two rounds, you look at it and you think, this is over. And it was the same with Fury Wilder. I just looked at that and just thought, this is, this is, this is over. Like, there's just, like, and you, you said it, Ron, there was no way back. You could understand why you wouldn't pull your man after five or six rounds because it's a bit humiliating. But after, after eight, nine, certainly, they really needed to hook him at that point because, as well, you say, he, he just he let, he had he no let, chance. He obviously went down in the 12th round. And, and the most crazy thing is, you know, it's pointed out on the TV coverage, you can see it there, with Gary Shaw, his promoter, is shouting at his corners to pull him out with five seconds of the 12th round remaining. And, and you know, it's, what's the point of doing that? It's, you know, they let him go off after that knockdown the last was, you know, that was just horrible, really. But, you know, it's uh, it's the way, you know, kind, kind of sometimes you get brave corners, you get macho corners, you know, they, they, you know, go on in the hope of, you know, a Julian Jackson punch and um, it wasn't coming at all. So what, what, what was the, what was the routine after the fight then? Obviously it's a very, very late night for you. It's always going to be a late night, even if boxing starts at a relatively normal time, but um, was the usual press conferences, stuff like that. Did you get to, to speak to him, to Enzo? Yeah, there was a usual press conference and, um, I mean, there was obviously, you know, a, a lot of happiness around. Obviously, Lacey wasn't there. Lacey was, uh, I assume, went straight to the hospital. And, um, yeah, it was one of those nights, again, like, like the, um, it, it was, it was, it wasn't, um, it was March, wasn't it, that the fight was? And uh, so it was still dark when we got outside. I remember after Zoo Cat and it was daylight when we got out. But, because um, that was the middle of summer. But, you know, it, Sometimes, it's, it's sometimes you get it when you watch a fight in the middle of the night, don't you? You feel like, oh, I've stayed up all night, I can't watch a fight. And as soon as this thing starts, you're like, whoa, you're wide awake. And, th- and there was that exhilaration for that. It was such a performance. There was, you know, it, you knew, or anyone who knew anything about boxing knew you were watching something truly great. Because this is a stage, this is a stage you don't get too much. And again... In those days, it was it was even rarer to see unification fights, let alone in Britain. It, those kind of fights w- were rare. They used to go to America. It was real. It was you know the very early days of the ideas of those fights coming over here. And, and now we expect them all to come over here. But um, the idea that a big star would come over here, put his reputation on the line, and get annihilated in that way, it was it was something else. It's interesting looking at the scores as well because Nelson Vasquez. Uh, gave it one nineteen one oh five, so he gave two more ten eights outside of the outside of the knockdown. Um, that's, you, that, know, that's... You, you could have given every round ten eight. <laughs> it was that bad, wasn't it? You could have been every round could have been a ten eight round. That's three more ten eights, isn't it? Because um, I know he lost the point. Sorry, of course he didn't lose a round. So um, yeah, so I mean, I mean, it was that. Yeah, I mean, in a fairer thing, it would have been a lot more ten eights because because. He wasn't competitive. Lacey wasn't competitive in at least eight of the rounds. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the one stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, 
new guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. So what we generally do is trace through what happened to these fighters we feature in these in these deep dives for the rest of their for the rest of their career and we'll 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 deal with Lacey first because he did keep going for a long time he had his last fight in 2015 against Sullivan Barrera um he had fights against Jermaine Taylor against Roy Jones he he exited the scene for a bit came back in 2013 had another four fights one two lost two but but as you say he was just never the same again after after that night, and I suppose you're never really going to be. I, I, I drew the parallel with with Froch Butte earlier on, and that was kind of the same as as uh, as Froch will, will will happily remind anybody who 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 would uh, care to listen that once Butte had been cobraed, as he would put it, then then he was never the same again either. And and that and that's the thing that that's what you referred to earlier, Matt. That's why. There is a bigger picture always than the here and now. You've got to think about about the rest of a fighter's career when they're when they're in in the middle of a, a torrid fight like that. And it, it'd have been it would have been amazing, would it not, if he'd managed to get back to to world level after after what happened in Manchester? Yeah, because it it, it was how he got. It, it wasn't just the beating. It was the you go from being having this bit of an inv- invincibility factor about you. To then just getting completely dismantled, you, you know, he wasn't in the fight for, for any second of the fight. I had a brutal fight later that year with Jamie Moore. You know, got knocked out in a grueler in a tenth round. Left stretched out the ring, ambulance. Spent the night in hospital. It was a brutal fight. A lot of people, you know, I didn't fight for a year after through one thing or another. And it was all like, you know, a lot of people thought he'll never be the same. You know, if he, if he boxes again, he'll never be the same. And, you know, you read those reports about yourself and you're thinking, no, I will. And, but I think from, from my point of view, I knew it had been an absolute ding-dong. I was 24. I, I was exhausted at the end. You know, Jeff Lacey had go, he's coming to the, 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 the fight with Joe Calzaghe as a world champion. He's got this aura around him, this invincible... Uh, you know, he'll, he'll have a bit of an invincibility factor in his own head as well, his team, and his self-belief. And then to just get so comprehensively outboxed and beaten up and hurt, you know, that would have been traumatic. You know, basically, he's going to think to himself afterwards when he's sitting there, oh, is someone that much better than me? You know, you, you these world title fights, unifications, they're nip and talk or someone has a better night. But for someone, like, he just wasn't on his level at all or nowhere near it. That That's difficult. I'm imagining you're a world champion. That, that's a difficult thing to get your head around, you know, and to, and to come back from, you know, he, he did come back and fight again, but he never came back from it and reached the same level of performance or, or, or even close to it. That he, he was damaged goods after that, that, that self-belief, that confidence, that was knocked completely out of him, you know, and that's where we think, you know, maybe we'd have been pulled out after six, you know, maybe he might, he might have still salvaged a bit, thought, well, you know what, weren't my night or I wasn't ready for it, but to be left in there and to just go through all that mental trauma of just getting hammered, you know, he never come back from that. And I, and, I, and I don't, that's when you need a, a cornerman to, to, that, to, to go on his, an experienced cornerman to know this ain't his night. He ain't winning this. He ain't going to land the lucky punch against Joe Calzaghe. Joe Calzaghe isn't going to tire. 
I'm not going to leave my man in there to get his career knocked out of him for another six rounds. You know, you, you pull him out, keep him for another day. And, and, and you got to remember after this, obviously, you know, in the brutal world of boxing, um, you essentially lose your backing as well. You know, who was interested in Jeff Lacey after this? People, people weren't getting behind him and say, let's give you two or three fights and then maybe think about something else. Suddenly you're in a position where you're getting thrown into fights, where you're getting thrown into make or break fights. And, and it's not a long career plan. It's not a, we're going to do this. It's, it's going to, well, you can have this. You're not on the money you used to be. And again, he must, he must have been a shell of himself. Must have been a shell of himself. And, you know, and exactly, it's the sort of defeat you can't put it down as a bad night, can you? It was, it was just absolutely annihilation. That, it's what you're saying there, Ron. It's not only then as your own sort of invincibility, self-confidence, self-belief being absolutely knocked out of you, but then the aftermath of that, seeing that all of a sudden the people, your team that believed in you, don't believe in you anymore. They don't think you're as good as what they did initially. And then you, that's when you start doubting yourself, oh, was I just a hype job? Am I not that good? And, you know, confidence and self-belief, you know, it's half the battle in any sport. You know, you see it was, you know, when, you, when your confidence is high, your performance is good, when your confidence is shut. You see, you see with Premier League footballers, when their confidence is shut, they can't they can't score for love, no one. When their confidence is unsung, they can't not score. It hits their leg and goes in, you know. And, and his, his confidence was shot after that fight and he never got it back. Well, that for me actually is where the real brutality of, of of boxing lies. It's it's in how quickly you get dropped and how quickly you can you can fall. And that loser's dressing room can be a really really lonely place. It reminds you always of that that line from Sergio Martinez where he said that, and people will be familiar with this, but I'll just repeat it anyway. He said that after he beat Chavez, after he beat Chavez Junior, he had thirteen hundred missed calls and messages on his phone, and after he lost to Cotto. He had four, three were from an unknown number and one was from his mum. And that's that just kind of drives that point home as to just how toxic you become because you've had the audacity on a given night not quite to be up to it. And I know he was well, well beaten against Kalzaghi, but he was well, well beaten by someone who was utterly exceptional. And, and on to him then, Ron. As can often be the case with fighters, it can be a slow burner boxing career in terms of the money and... It was in these last few fights where it really began to come for him, Kawasaki. The recognition, which was what he craved to, but also the money. And the money is is really important. You're not going to get to the stage he got to without doing it for the glory. But then when you deliver on that, you need to see you need to see your bank balance rise a bit. So he defended against Sakio Bika. Then he had to drop the IBF because they wanted him to fight... Um, Robert Stieglitz, that's right, and American TV weren't interested, so he ended up fighting Peter Manfredo, who was nowhere near his level, but people knew who he was because he'd come out of the Contender Series, and that was a big fight at the, I think that was at the stadium as well, wasn't it? At the Millennium Stadium. And then on to the big three, and, I, and I'll leave these to you, Kessler, Kessler Hopkins and, and, uh, and Roy Jones to, to finish off with. I mean, what, watching the, the doc yesterday, what kind of struck me was that he timed his retirement absolutely right, didn't he? Because he was just he was just running out of gas. But he got those three things done. Unification to become undisputed, really. I know he didn't have the four belts at the same time, but he did that tick against Kessler. Massive fight in Vegas against Hopkins, tick. 
massive fight at Madison Square Garden, tick, and then out. Yeah, I mean, I think Kessler was a fabulous performance because it was a fight that was going... I mean, obviously, we saw later on Kessler beating um, Carl Froch. And um, because he was losing that fight and he turned it round and it showed, again, for those people who considered, you know, Calzaghi just a pressure fighter, just a guy who who had lots of speed, he threw lots of things, didn't really... A lot didn't make sense. But he showed he was actually a very calculated, very smart fighter. The way, the way he turned that round and the way he got Kessler to walk onto things. And, and again, he was a comfortable winner in that. Then obviously there was the Hopkins fight, which um, I thought he won. I seem to remember I had him by three rounds, but he got knocked down the first round. And um, again, you know, the, the irony was that Hopkins was seen as an old man then. And, and um, in reality, he went on far longer than Joe. Um, but I, I thought it was a good performance in an ugly old fight. And the Jones performance, Jones was, you know, largely shot as well, just despite him going on for ages. And again, he got knocked down the first round there. And um, but again, that was a sensational performance. You know, the way he, um, the way he ended up showboating against Jones. So, so he finished his, his career fantastically. You know, so for all the, you know, people don't remember the the McGurchins he fought at Cardiff Ice Rink and people like that. And uh, there, there was there was a sense that. You know, he got his his due in the end. But I, I always think with Joe, because Joe got, got got a sort of hits for... Um, you got to look at the big picture with Joe. He was kind of very much from out of the boxing scene. You know, he, he was... Um, as an amateur, he won three ABA titles at three different weights, which um, takes some doing. He didn't go to the Olympics. And Robin Reed went in his place because the Welsh ABA didn't put him forward because some sort of round. And then um, he was signed by Terry Lawless. And I, I think that, that early part of his career sort of like was tricky for him because he was, again, not really pushed forward by Lawless and Duff in that early parts of his career. He was fighting all over the place. He was fighting in places like Watford at times on, on sort of other people's cards. He, you know, I remember him having a fight with um, Mark Delaney, wasn't it, on a, on a matron show when he was essentially the away fighter. And um, you know, you know, and when he eventually went to Warren, went to Frank Warren, um, he suddenly discovered that he was actually in debt to his old promoter. So he was unbeaten in about 17, 18 fights and couldn't afford to pay the mortgage. So I think I think that had a big telling on, you know, people say, oh, why didn't he go to America and that sort of thing? He was very happy to box at home, the family set up and do kind of what he was told to do. And, and, you know, unfortunately, because of that time, there weren't the mega fights for him, but I, I've never really thought that was his fault. Again, the comparisons are always, you know, Kawasaki against Froch, and I would always generally say, you know, Kawasaki was the better fighter, but Froch possibly had a better career because he had the bigger fights. And, uh, you know, even including for those last fights, in the end, so you are—you can only be as good as you are in your era, whoever you are. Yeah, I mean the th- the thing with the thing with Calzaghe was, you know, I think there's a few things. I think he was—he um, didn't really play the game promotionally. You know, he he was hard work. I, I know this from, from when I was obviously with, with Sports Network and Frank Warren. You know, he he didn't really. He just thought. I'd, he, he, he just wanted to win his fight. He just wanted to box. He was a bit shy. You know, he wasn't, 
we're saying, let's, let's say, you know, Nassim Hamad was a promoter's dream. Ricky Kalaki came just after Naz and he was trying to maybe a little bit, a bit, a bit like Naz and it was inauthentic and didn't work at all. And then, you know, Ricky Hatton was selling all the tickets. Joe was world champion and he was getting paid solid money for beating good fighters, but he never had that signature fight, that marquee fight. And that's why we, you, you know, you know, we, you picked this one about Lacey because it is this fight which started that final chapter in Calzaghe's career, which elevated him. You know, it was the Lacey, it was this fight that took him up there, which then made the Hopkins fight happen, which made the Kessler fight happen. And like you say, even though Roy Jones was just a, a swan song, a sign-up, it was still, from Joe's point of view, he ticked the box. He was a legend. It was Madison Square Garden. You know, he was happy with that. But the Kessler one, as you said, Ron, that, that, was, that was definitely one of his best performances because it was a fight that wasn't going his way, yet he found a way to win. And that's what great fighters do. And he, uh, Joe always found a way by hook or by crook, whether it was pretty or ugly, he found a way to win. And, and another thing I picked up when you said about, when you say about um, Carl Frotch, he weren't dissimilar in, in the sense with Kazagi in the fact that Frotch got his accolades and love in the, in the final chapter of his career when he came back. Mm. And, and as Andy Clark said, Cobra Butte, you know, he rolled the dice on that one. He didn't get paid loads of money because they had to pay Butte to come over and fight him in Nottingham. But he went out there and smashed him to pieces and that just suddenly took, and I think they had massive viewing figures that night. And that just took Frutch's career to another level. And I think he was probably 34 or 35 at the time. And then he had those, those big, massive fights with, with Groves, which, you know, I, I'm not, I know he earned good money in his career, but certainly that took his, his dough and his profile and his popularity, you know, to, to the level where it is today. It could often happen, can't it? It could often happen that way around. Like I said, it, it can be a it can be a slow burner, and if you just need to try and keep the faith through those through those darker times, which is a lot easier said than done. Um, I mean, he, he does say when he's talking to Barry McGuigan uh, down at the Newbridge Boxing Club where he trained in in the build up to that fight against Lacey, they're just chatting in the middle of the ring. They they play it on the on the uh, broadcast on the night, and he just said, "Well, if I'd been born three years earlier, then I'd have been in that mix with." Ben and Eubank and and Collins and Watson and 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 he's right. He just he just missed out on that. In terms of in terms of all time British greats, these things are hard to calculate because different fighters from different eras. A lot of the time, to be honest, I don't think there's all that much value in it. But it is but it is good fun to kind of to kind of discuss it. I mean, where would you where would you Put him Ron, if you if you if you had to. Well, I did one of these things a, a few years ago. At um, uh, you know, I did a top hundred British boxers, which I'll totally rewrite now because um, <laughs> I, I probably did a shambolic effort. But essentially, I put him as the best post-war British fighter. Uh, I put him just above Lennox Lewis. I put him the only guy I put above him was Ted Lewis. I put him above Jimmy Wilde, which again a lot of people might not. But um, but again, you know, you compare. It's difficult to compare errors, compare, you know, the big fights they had, uh, the weights they were in, you know, because um, super middleweight against flyweight in that case. And it's tricky because obviously, essentially, Lennox, for instance, is a more historical fighter because obviously he unified the world heavyweight title. And um, historically, you look at boxing and, um, and very few people did that and they're all the legends of the sport. Um, 
I think talent-wise, you know, I, I don't think there's been a more naturally talented boxer than Joe Calzaghe in this country. And um, what again, whether his career stands up for that, I don't know. I don't know. But um, you know, him, him. You look at him, sort of um, for for post-war British fighters. You know, Ken Buchanan be up there. Lennox will be up there, and uh, Turpin probably be up there. And um, that's a pretty elite bunch, isn't it? And how was he? But when he when he retired, Matt, how was how would you say that Kawasaki is is considered amongst the the professional ranks? Because this is always something that that I generally, I think all of us journalists set a lot of store by when I was covering football, you know, whoever was in the PFA team of the year, I always thought that meant a lot. That was, that was quite telling. You'd have some quite big names who, who very rarely made that team, but had a, had a kind of big reputation. Um, how was there a lot of admiration for Calzaghe that he'd basically done, he'd done it the hard way. Firstly, he kept the faith, he got there and, um, and he just done everything right because, as I said, he timed he timed that even the retirement he got right. He timed that to perfection. Yeah, look, his, his longevity. Um, he did get the signature fights in the end. You know, fifty thousand people in the Millennium Stadium when he fought Kessler. A fight that he, he came from behind to win. You know, he made the adjustments. You know, stepped up to light heavyweight and beat Bernard Hopkins. And actually, when you look at what Hopkins did after that, he makes the win even better. Uh, he had some great wins after that, Bernard Hopkins. So it makes the Calzaghe win even better again. Um, you know, and he and he and he he signed off on his own terms. You know, Madison Square Garden against Roy Jones. Like I say, not the Roy Jones of of years gone by, but, it, but nonetheless, it was a great. You know, he, he he won easy after getting put down in the in the first. And I think he, I remember him saying to me actually, he said, you know, in the end, he said there was all these offers and that. He said, but I knew I wasn't the same fighter. And I, he said the thought of losing after all those years was just too much to even think about. He said, that, you know, I'd done it. I ticked all the boxes. I've done everything I'd wanted to do. I had enough dough. I, I, I'm not an extravagant person anyway. And I just thought, now's the time. And I, I just remember, I, was, I had more admiration for him, I think, in that regard than, than, than how good he was as a boxer, was that, you know, he was enough of a person in himself that he didn't need the, the validation of more, more, more. He'd done it. He'd, he'd come in a bit like when Andre Ward retired at the top, you know, and he just said, you know, mission accomplished. You know, I'm, he's not chasing another ten million. He's, he's always he's, he's not money's not making him who he is. Do you know what I mean? Or the the admiration of the fans. He's enough of a man in his when he's in his own skin. And I thought, fair play to you. I really like I say. I think listen, we all know how good of a boxer he was, but he's a proper man too. One of the things. I particularly remember is after is the press conference after his fight with uh, Jones at Madison Square Garden, and um, running running into that because there'd been a, a, an automatic rematch clause for that fight, and going into it, which is obviously worth a lot of money, Joe just had the view the rematch won't happen. I'll beat him too easily. But after the fight, I remember um, another Gary Shaw fight. Uh, uh, Chad Dawson was in the audience, and he stood up and basically challenged Joe there. And instead of doing what a lot of boxers would do, which would just be, who are you? You're nothing. Put him down. He didn't do that at all. He said, if I go on, you know, you're, you are, you're a great young fighter. And if I don't box again, you'll be a guy who will take over and be a world champion. And to actually have the, the you know, that he didn't 
he was confident enough himself that he didn't, the idea of this guy standing up and saying, you know, you fight me, you know, until you fight me, kind of thing. He didn't, he didn't do it like that. Dawson was a bit more respectful than that. But, you know, it's like at a press conference. And, and he was just, I've got to think what's best for me. But if I don't fight again, you will be the next guy who takes over the division. And he was for a very short time anyway. So. Yeah, I think there's something enormously impressive about people who who do manage to go out on their on their own terms and just seem completely at peace with the way that they've done everything because it's almost like they don't need to, and they don't really talk about it. They don't really go back to it that much. It's not like they really feel the need to to mark out their territory because they. It's, it's perfectly clear where the boundaries are. We all know what they've done. We all know what they achieved. They don't need to. They don't need to go on about it. He still lives in Newbridge. Um, he yeah, had prob- basic lads. It's not like he had a career. He strictly come dancing after. He, he was stiffer than a board. He was like a tin mm. man, worse than me. <laughs> I, I think, to be honest, that was probably something that that that, that made a few people smile because the, str- uh, the strange thing was he was favourite. For Strictly Come Dancing in the betting before that. And, and I remember someone I'll talk to me that and I said, you know, because Joe was quite a shy person. I said, he's totally unsuited, totally unsuited to doing anything that sort of puts himself out there. But you know, that's the idea. You get a you get an agent and all of a sudden they um it's, a, it's seen as a great opportunity for you, I suppose, isn't it? So I mean, I just always thought that any fighter would be good at that because you, you've got to have good feet, haven't you? Any any fighter with with decent feet, I'd have thought would be good at Strictly. But I keep trying to say to but I keep trying to say to Bellew that he should do Strictly. You know, he's he's done the SAS program, and I keep trying every time I see him, I just sort of prod him a little bit and say we should get you know hashtag bo- you know the bomber for Strictly going. He's not he's not he's not having it. I mean, you know, I think it'd be yeah, I'd like to see more people. I've got to be honest, I'd rather starve in the jungle for two weeks than go and strictly come dancing. I, you think, oh, Cal Zaggy's a bad dancer. I'm even stiffer. <laughs> yeah. Imagine Belly being slagged off by the judges on Strictly Come Dancing. What the reaction to that would be? That would be uh, something else, wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh, you'd be class. Oh, you'd be good. That's, that's exactly, exactly why you need him. You need him in that program. That's exactly why. That's, that's exactly, exactly why I think fighters are just, in a way, are kind of they're too shrewd. I think in a lot a lot of the time, so they know they know their limitations when it comes to some things, um, and they're a little bit wary of uh, of signing on the on the dotted line for that kind of stuff. But um, anyway, we we digress. We've we've got away from um, from what we were talking about. But I think that wraps it up. That wraps it up quite nicely. It was just a really fun one to look back on this because. As I said at the beginning, it wasn't one that really was at the forefront of my mind. But when I thought about it, given given the character that 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 he is and the history that he's got and the place he's got in the history of British boxing, that fight was absolutely pivotal and just good to get a flavour of of what it was like that week. Um, I mean, watching one thing back about it yesterday, and and this would appear to have been the case. It, it was just very kind of impressive just how completely and utterly confident he was. There didn't seem to be any kind of nerves there whatsoever. And I do think that that's often the, just the reserve of a very special selected few that they're that certain that whatever the other person brings, whatever might happen and weird things can happen in there that they are going to win. I've got to add one little bit and it's just, cause I think it's, only told me I thought it was brilliant. You know, after we beat, um, Lacey that night, whatever time it was in the morning, he got in his car and drove home to Wales. 
imagine that, not going to an after party, not rolling up, but it must have been just that high. It must have been just that high on what he'd just done that he obviously couldn't sleep. And then he just jumped in his car. I don't know if he was on his own or with his dad and drove all the way back to South Wales. I'm just thinking, can you imagine driving back how euphoria that you'd be just feeling after that performance? Unbelievable. Absolutely, absolutely. In many ways, that kind of just sums him up, doesn't it? You know, he's just done this incredible thing, and uh, uh, and he's just, you know, no fuss, no, 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 no craving for any great attention. Just, just wants to get back off home. So, gents, thanks very much. It's been great fun, um, Ron. By the time this goes out, the 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 night that you're going to on Saturday will have will have long uh, been and been and gone. But I hope you have a hope you have a good time there. We'll see you down there. Um, one of the chosen few. Not many people are led in to, to, to watch to watch fights at the minute. Katie Taylor in action again. So hopefully, hopefully it all goes well, uh, and we'll catch you down the road uh, for another one of these at some point. I'm pretty sure about that. And we'll we'll keep these coming between now and Christmas. As I said, we get now into some quite big fight weeks with Tyson Fury coming up and Anthony Joshua coming up. So we'll probably look to to add in a few bonuses around those fights as well see who see who we can we can get our our hands on um there's always a good few candidates we haven't had Andy Lee on for a little while for example we should probably call on him again before too long and, and Matt's got a couple of ideas as well for for a couple of people maybe um from from across the pond that's the beauty of zoom of course we can increase our catchment area and uh, in the meantime stay safe everybody have a good week and we'll catch you again soon Yes, that light falls on the right, babe, not that Maggie's back in Podcast Network.